podcast is out. The age of independence is here, where the next generation of high-performing agencies transform the agency landscape. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, and mega startup coach. This podcast is all about you, the agency owner, stepping into the new wave of opportunity, knocking out the competition in the modern market. This is the Age of Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Agar. Welcome to the show. Hi, agents. It's Caitlin, and I'm back with Amanda Mapp. And I love working with Amanda. Our education team at Quantum has so much fun. And if you've been following the Age of Independence, you've probably heard from Amanda on our episode about the DISC personalities chart and some of those other cool things. So, so excited to have her back today. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me back. Love this. I love having you on the podcast, but I feel like it's a little bit of pressure because I know you're like an avid podcasting consumer. So how does it feel to be like on the podcast today? (laughs) It's, I think it's honestly more pressure for me because I hear so many amazing podcasts all the time, yours included. And so I just want to make sure that I live up to the standards. So what are some of your favorite podcasts that like you just can't miss right now? Okay, so for sure, Armchair Expert by Dak Shepard. And that one has a bunch of like sub- podcasts included in it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the EQ podcast about emotional intelligence. Um, and, and every now and then I'll listen to, you know, a true crime podcast just to keep things interesting. So sword and scales up there for me as one of my favorites. (laughs) Those are so good. Um, I love that you found like an EQ podcast. I'm actually listening to the book on emotional intelligence on Audible. So okay, cool. What do you yeah, think about the, the person who coined um, emotional intelligence, Daniel? He actually has the podcast with his son, so it's really interesting to hear from the folks who literally, you know, thought about that concept and gave it a name, anyways. Um, and so I really. It's a pretty new podcast, so there's not a ton um, of episodes yet, but it's really interesting. So, so when you're not listening to podcasts and like all that that cool stuff that you're learning, what are you watching on Netflix right now? Okay, so I'm actually on a Hulu kick these days, and I've been rewatching Modern Family, which is just one of my all time favorite shows in the world, and I'm. <laughs> I'm also like addicted to Shark Tank and I don't know why (laughs) it makes me want to become an inventor. Like I'll just be looking at something random and be like, how do I innovate this and make it better? Because my goal is to like work with Mark Cuban and get a deal of a lifetime. I just want to go on there and have them all like for for my business. I love your app idea that you told me about earlier. So (laughs) I feel like you could solve some really big problems. I love Shark Tank. I feel like it's been the longest time since I got to sit down and just been Shark Tank. But um, Karis is like eight now and she likes it. And so I don't know, it must be in her genes or something, but she thinks Shark Tank is fascinating. And I was like, Speedy, do you even like, like, should we talk about like what an investor is and like what a business is? Do you know what a product is? (laughs) So she's learning so much. 
It's so educational and just fun for like all ages. There's so many. Um, yes. Mark Cuban calls them kidpreneurs. And there's so many like young kids that end up on Shark Tank, like 13 years old, and they've created some cool sock or something. And I was watching it with my seven-year-old nephew the other day, and he was so engaged. And I was like, I... I'm surprised like he's interested in watching this person present on a new skincare line, but I was very into it. And so was he. Oh, so my gosh, I love it. They just like suck you in and you just like want to know like what hardball questions they are going to get and if they're going to like yes. make it through those tough questions or crumble. And it's like so intense and I love yes. it. I think that one of the things that is actually something that I think we're planning on discussing today is that these great ideas that they have from this show evolve from somebody trying to solve a problem. And ultimately, that's why their inventions or their business concepts work is because they found a way to truly solve a problem for someone. And I think that's why it's so interesting to me because we all experience problems every single day. And if we can just access that creative part of our brain to say, how do I, you know, find a solution for this? We could all be entrepreneurs. It's so true. And I was just telling you earlier that when we were just talking about like what kind of app we would create, if we could create any kind of app, I was looking for a chores app for our kids for the summer because they're six and eight. And I thought it'd be so fun if I could gamify these cool things I want them working on over the summer. So like we're working on math, we're working on reading and journaling. How can I make it fun? And they're earning their way to like visit the Crayola experience store. And there was no app where I could like customize their activities and give them like customized rewards as they like work their way through the journey. And there were some chores apps. So if, if there's any parents listening and you found the perfect one, text it to me. I definitely want to check it out. But I wanted something that was just as fun and appealing as the games they play, like a dragon game or something where they're like working on a like farm with farm animals or something like the other games they have. And it's not there yet. So if anybody's looking for an idea for an app, you have a mom over here that's like ready to download <laughs> when somebody finally creates that. Um, I know. There's so many problems yet to be solved. I'm just looking for someone that can develop. <laughs> right? Like, I need someone who can code and develop ideas. an app because I have a lot of app ideas. <laughs> so many app ideas. And I love this idea of Shark Tank, like putting focus on kidpreneurs now because I... There's so much stuff for kids that I sometimes think like, how much better would this be if it had been developed or produced or directed by a kid instead of an adult? So I, I'm a big fan and supporter of like art for kids by kids or TV shows or cartoons where kids are like the primary content creators. Because what I found with my kids is they like come up with stories that are so different than something an adult would come up with. And I would love to see more content out there where it's, you know, six, seven and eight year olds creating content for three, four and five year olds. And like what kind of stories they would come up with without adults like intervening and like changing the script. <laughs> yes, I was actually like watching TikTok the other day. Don't judge me. Um, I am a millennial who loves TikTok. Uh, but I heard something about how kids have they still have access to that part of their brain that 
is super creative. It allows them to have really heightened sense of imaginativity. And if that's a word, imagination, and um, it helps them to be able to come up with all these creative and unique, you know, ideas, but it's also why they think there's monsters under the bed, you know, right. because there's <laughs> this super crazy creative part of their brain that just sees things differently than the way they will when they're an adult. So I wonder what some of the things are that like squash creativity. And sometimes I like, I've been hesitant to put Karis in an art class. She loves art and she's getting to the age where she's like definitely old enough for an art class now, but I kind of want her to just do her art the way she wants to do her art without someone telling her like, this is how you draw a portrait or this is how you draw like a mountain or a horse. So I don't know. I'm not an art expert, but it's just something I've wondered is like, she loves art. She has her own style. If I put her in art class, is that going to change? I don't know. Or maybe I it'll just give her another channel for fear. her. Creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably fear of judgment or fear of rejection. Those are things that prevent us from taking risks because I don't think enough of us associate with we don't associate risk as being something that's beneficial for ourselves, regardless of the outcome. If you take a risk and it fails, you've still benefited from that risk because you've either learned something or you've had an, ex you know, an exciting new experience. And um, that is something that when I decided I had a conversation with somebody about taking a risk that I was nervous about. And they literally said that to me. They were like, at the end of the day, regardless of what happens, this risk that you're taking is going to be better for you. It's going to make you a better person because you've taken that jump and that leap of faith. And that, I think fear of that holds so many people back. I know it definitely has held me back in the past. Yeah. And you, can have that like fear of the jump, but it's not a like neutral move or a net loss at any point. Like it's always going to have positives. Maybe it was a risk that like introduced you to other people, new people you wouldn't have met otherwise. Maybe you realized you were tougher than you thought you were. Maybe you were successful and now you have this like amazing confidence that's going to help you take the next risk. And so that's something that I would want our kids to learn is like not, being hesitant because of a fear of like, what will people think or what might happen? Because what's, what's the best that could happen? Like what, what, how could this go right? What might we be missing out on if we don't take that leap? There's an opportunity cost to everything. So no matter what we do, we're going to be. Yes, exactly. Um, that's so true. I think one I've, I've been reading books recently and there's one, that I've been reading about, like finding home within yourself. I feel like that statement that you said, like, what if it all goes right? That's the biggest thing that we can ask ourselves is what if this is the best day of my life? You know, for me, I get social anxiety sometimes when I think about like going to a party. I'm like, what if, you know, I trip and fall and make a fool of myself? Or what if I go on a podcast and I like say something wrong or I, my internet cuts out and I, freeze up. Like I think of all the things that can go wrong, but what if it's perfect? You know, what if it's the best thing that I could have done that day? Like those are the, the shift in mindset is so important between thinking about and manifesting the negative and thinking about and manifesting the positive. And I think you're right. If we can start teaching our kids that to start having that mindset shift, it's going to be huge for their tolerance for risk and their willingness to take more risks. 
It definitely will. And I think if I can instill that confidence in them now and like the safe space to be able to take some of those risks that they'll be more ready for it when bigger decisions come along later on down the road. And you're a content creator. So do you ever get like writer's block? Do you ever have times where you've been able to like put your finger on like why the creativity was flowing? I'd love to hear so much more about your creative process because you're the director of education at Quantum and you create tons of content. Sometimes you're in front of a class teaching agency owners about um, how to learn this great new business principle. Sometimes you are working with a supervisor who's running into a roadblock. They need some guidance. Other times you're writing and creating courses that hundreds of people are going to take to figure out how to get from step A to step Z. So where do you get the creative energy to do those things? Oh, well, thank you so much for the compliment, first of all. But I feel like for me, it's all about trying to find a way to connect it to something I've experienced. Because as humans, what we experience is pretty similar to what other humans experience. Like we all experience the emotions of shame and fear and excitement and happiness and, you know, anguish. Like we all have this range of different emotions that we experience. And if I can find a way to tell a story in a way that makes somebody identify that that experience is the same or similar as somebody else's, it can help them connect the dots. And so when I'm creating content, that's what I'm thinking is how do I make this a story? How do I make it compelling so that people feel engaged in it, um, but also accessible and understandable so that they can see it as something they might be able to implement themselves? Um, and so it's I think it's less about me thinking, how do I do this creatively and more about me thinking, how do I do it um, in a way that is like a story? So that... Um... I, I read that like our memory is looking for stories. Like it will like latch onto a story and the way our memory works, it'll sink in better than something that's just wrote information. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it really depends to uh, the way like male brain and female brain process information is a little bit different, but females will like typically latch onto the details in a story Whereas like the male brain will latch on to the, uh, you know, overall big picture of something that happened. Um, and the reason that we do that is typically because we don't necessarily remember what happens, but we remember how we feel when it happens. And so that's why when I, when I talk about, you know, either, you know, working with a, a customer or solving a problem, solving a business problem. I try to talk about the emotions that we experience during that process because it helps people to, like you said, latch onto that part of the story and, you know, create retention from it. So you created a course recently about when a client calls in to request to cancel their policy, like how you handle that conversation, make it like a really positive experience and where problem solving comes in with that and the role it plays in retention. Um, and I noticed that you had a story in there and I'm hoping you'll remember which one I'm talking about. Was there like an example where you were, you were used like French fries <laughs> and, and tied it in. Do you remember which part yes. I'm talking about? Cause Okay. Yes, I do. 
Um, and so I was talking about price as a pain point or price as a problem uh, because they're two different things. We all are consumers. Price is important to every single person. Um, but we also know you kind of pay for what you get in some situations, insurance being one of them. The more insured you are, the more expensive it's going to be. But we have to identify with our clients, is the price a pain point situation or is it a problem? And so the example that I used is, you know, if you go through a drive through and you get home and you realize they forgot your French fries, right? That might be a pain point, okay? It's not enough of a problem for me to have to go back to the store, get a whole new meal and then come back home again because it's going to take like 30 minutes for me to do right. that. So it. it's a pain point. It's a little bit irritating. It's something that I'm thinking about for sure, but it's not my main decision maker. Now, if I get home and realize they forgot my sandwich, they forgot my French fries and they gave me the wrong drink, now I'm turning around, right? I have it's now become a problem. It's now something that I have to have a solution for because it's more than just a little irritating. It's something that I can't overcome. And when we can identify whether or not price is a pain point or if it's a problem, that helps us to strategize the remainder of our conversation with our client. Because ultimately we want to do what's best for them and what's right for them. But if spending, you know, an extra five to $10 a month is going to give them an amazing additional coverage, it may be worth it for them. But if it's something that they physically cannot afford to pay for, then we know we have to adjust the policy and have a more creative solution for them. I love that you incorporated that like real life example where someone could identify with it and be like, yeah, you know, I know when I use Instacart, they're going to get the order like 95% right. And then the other 5% of stuff isn't going to be there at the store when they go. And I'm going to have to find a replacement, but it's so <laughs> worth it to not, to, to just be able to order your groceries and have them ready for pickup or come to your door. And so even though I know that the bananas are going to be bruised and that like my favorite like celery juice is not going to be in stock. <laughs> <laughs> or my grain-free tips, then I'm still, it's just an interesting way of looking at it. Like, is this a pain point? And that doesn't, it's still valid. We still have to think about like how we make it less of a pain point in the future, but is it a problem? And then when it is a problem, what mode do we go into? And I think this article that you and I were talking about recently is so interesting on that note, because it's like, okay, when you have a problem in front of you, do you, should you go into empathy mode? Should you go into apologizing mode or should you go into like problem solving and seeking solutions mode or both? And like, what's the difference? So um, yeah. let's, mm -hmm, go ahead. So thinking back to my little fast food uh, analogy that I was talking about. You're talking about ordering green juice. I'm talking about French fries. Okay? Yeah. It's it's not the same. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but when I go, if I go back to the store, cause I've had a problem, I go back to the drive-thru, I have a problem. My whole order is wrong. If the cashier is like, Oh, I'm really sorry about that. We'll try to do better next time. I'm not going to feel good about that interaction, even though they were nice as can be. They had a smile on their face and they said, I'm sorry, probably two or three times. What would satisfy me and ultimately determine if I'm going to be a returning customer would be, do they solve my problem? So do they quickly say, you know, at first, in the first few seconds, I'm so sorry that we got your order wrong. 
please let me let me get that corrected for you. Let me just confirm with you, what were the items that you ordered? And then they immediately took actionable steps to solve that problem and, you know, get me the right order or whatever the problem is. Did they take actionable mm-hmm. steps to solve it? That's what's determining my satisfaction. Um, and one thing that I read recently is that it, it kind of ties into what this article was talking about is that something being a success is subjective, right? But somebody being satisfied is internal. And so if we can create satisfaction from within, we're more likely to be able to retain someone, regardless of whether we felt like this was a successful conversation or not. Did it make the person feel satisfied at the end? Um, And that satisfaction comes from my problems being solved. Mm -hmm. Um, because ultimately you want somebody to do something about it. Right. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that apology can just sound like a pat response and something that where, Oh, they've checked their box. They've said that they're sorry, but they didn't actually do anything about my situation or, or put me in a better place. And we see that in so many areas in life where sometimes like you, you should say you're sorry, but that doesn't mean that you fixed anything or that anything moved forward or that anything was done. It doesn't make you feel better if you had an argument and all you got was a pat, I'm sorry, or if somebody dropped the ball. So, so what can we do? And this, this article um, that we were talking about, I'm just going to, just to catch our listeners up, there's an article in Harvard Business Review. If you guys want to look this up, it's called Customer Service. Sorry is not enough. And at first I was a little like skeptical because the premise of this article is that there was an American Airlines study that said that airlines reps who immediately went into trying to search for the lost bags had better customer satisfaction results, even if they couldn't find the bag, than clients who called and their luggage had been lost and the flight had been canceled and the rep on the line showed a lot of empathy and a lot of apologetic, um, I'm sorry, in that situation. So um, the premise here was that clients are really looking for us to do something. They want to see action on our part. Yeah. And even if it's not the ideal situation, it's not the ideal solution. Do they have some sort of creative problem solving? Are they attempting to at least help Mm -hmm. us out? And I've been in that exact same position. I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I've had my bag lost before and I've been the person that's been told, you know, we'll check on it. And I waited, I've literally waited in DCA for like three hours before waiting for my bag to be found. And then there was one associate that was like, you know what, I am going to describe what your bag looks like to me. I'm going to go in the back and see if I can find it myself. They found my bag. I was probably waiting there for three hours for nothing. It was probably in the back the whole time, (laughs) but I was ultimately like happy with this person. I forgot about everything else because I was like, this person went they found a solution, they went and found my bag. Now, even if that solution had been, hey, we found out your bag is stuck in Charlotte, we're going to have it sent to your final destination for you, or we're going to have it delivered to your house directly. You know, that would have been more of a satisfier for me than I'm so sorry, your bag's stuck in Charlotte, there's nothing we can do about it. But I'm really, really sorry. Well, it, you do have some flight stories. 
every time I fly, something happens. I feel like whenever you try to make it out to Dallas, the weather is not on your side or the flight gets turned around in the air or <laughs> so the flight's rescheduled or your layover. So you're a trooper um, and you probably have a lot of experience with these things. But we Oh, I have a million airline stories. <laughs> and it's so frustrating because a lot of times there's nothing they can do when you're at the airport and they're like, sorry, your flight was canceled. And we had that happen one time where we were stuck in Boulder during a blizzard and trying to like rearrange the flight tickets and all this good stuff. And the rep for the particular airline we were flying with was literally like, um, sorry, there, uh, there's nothing we can do. Um, refused to escalate it, you know, was just like not empathetic at all. And not a problem solver. So that was like a double whammy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're missing on both ends. Are you ready to transform the way your business communicates? Look no further than Lightspeed Voice, the ultimate solution for insurance agencies seeking a seamless communication. I've used them for over eight years. I'm telling you what I'm reading is the truth. Picture this crystal clear calls, advanced features, unparalleled, flexible, tailored, just for you. That's Lightspeed Voice. Tired of drop calls and outdated systems? Lightspeed Voice has your back. Say goodbye to communication hiccups and hello to a new era of efficiency. I love that. Boost productivity with features like call recording, voice to email, and effortless call transfers. Work from the office, from home, or on the go. Lightspeed Voice keeps you connected wherever your business takes you. Don't worry about the transition. Our dedicated support and onboarding teams will guide you every step of the way. Make the switch to Lightspeed and join the ranks of satisfied insurance agency owners like me experiencing the power of seamless communication. Ready to elevate your agency? Visit lightspeedvoice.com or call 877.97-VOICE to schedule your free demo. Lightspeed Voice. We're more than just talk. Cast approved. I think we're taught that you know, saying I'm sorry is the right thing to do. And that showing empathy is the right thing to do um, if somebody's experiencing a problem. But that's because we don't know how to solve it. Oh, you're in one of the, uh, you're I'm in the in room a, that has the automatic lights. We're, you know, saving the uh, environment. Environment, yes. <laughs> we probably have a good 40 minutes to go before it'll go off again. So There we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's I think it's just coming from a place that that's what we were taught that, that as long as we're saying, I'm sorry, even if there's nothing we can do, that that's the answer. But, but what that study showed in that Harvard business review article is that it only goes so far. And I think it, the article said after the first seven seconds saying, I'm sorry, more can actually further frustrate your customer and further, you know, escalate the situation into something negative. And mm -hmm. so if we can get that apology in upfront, I think it's still important for sure. I think it's still well-received. You know, when I go back to the fast food place, do I want them to apologize for getting my order wrong? Sure. But ultimately I just want it to be fixed. Right. You know, even if it, even if I don't get that apology, if they're just like, Oops, here you go. Here's the right order. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm like, great. Thank you so much. Um, and I think in insurance, we have to get extra creative with solving problems. Um, because we don't have, you know, a one size fits all solution for people. At least it shouldn't be. 
way. Um, so we have to think outside the box and think, how do we, you know, adjust coverages or look at different carrier options to make sure that a customer's problem is actually being solved at the end of the day. And sometimes that includes like using the words, I'm sorry, like, oh, I'm sorry, your bags got lost. And that's okay as long as it's within the first seven seconds. But that stat that you shared, like an apology that extends beyond the first seconds of an interaction can reduce customer dissatisfaction. Super interesting. And so they're suggesting to then follow it up with problem solving words like, oh, you know, huge problem that you probably want us to start looking at your options right away. Let me pull those up. And so yeah. you're just like moving into problem solving mode. But I'm curious, like you said, we're trained to think about apologies a certain way when we're growing up. And I wonder if it kind of depends on like what part of the country we grew up in. But um, did was like, I'm sorry, is part of like, I grew up in North Carolina. And so I think it was considered like good manners, like, oh, I'm sorry. And like maybe over apologizing when you don't need to sometimes. That's a what great point. I think that you know, wherever you are raised geographically, how you sound in general too, not just like the words that you say, but how you sound impacts how the call is going to flow and who you have on the other line um, is going to impact how that conversation goes. So for example, I am from Virginia, which is pretty like, you know, neutral in terms of like, are we Southern? Are we Northern? Nobody really knows. <laughs> We're all just over here, we pick apart and we go with it. Um, but when I went to Indiana, even though, you know, it's very, Indiana's very Midwest culture and they're known for being like super nice, very apologetic. And if they got somebody from New York on the phone, they would be immediately like, oh, this person's being so aggressive with me. When really that person's just having a conversation with them, they're not being aggressive. Are they talking faster? Yes. Are they more straightforward and more direct? Yes. But that's just, how people from New York talk, right? Typically. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not got the same reputation as somebody from the Midwest. But then there's also stigmas with people from the South. And this article talked a little bit about that too. People who come across as like overly friendly, it can feel condescending almost. And, you know, there's that Southern like, sweetie, like we know it's not it's nice, nasty, right? We know it doesn't mean <laughs> sweetie, right? It really means something else. Uh, I lived in Texas, so I, I've heard it. I've heard it all. Uh, but how it really just depends on, like you said, where you're from, but also who you're talking to. And so I think if we can, if we can make it more about the words that we're saying, as opposed to how we're saying them, like that's going to go very far. So like you said, like, let's make sure that we can solve your problem here today. Let me look at some options for you. Uh, let's talk about what solutions that we have for you to choose from and work with your client on creating a solution collaboratively, as opposed to just saying, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm so, so sorry. And this, this statement here, if if employees project a lot of warmth, customers perceive them to be less competent that might be something that some of our like really helpful relationship oriented representatives don't know, don't realize they think that they're helping and it comes from like a really good place. And their intention is to make the client feel better and to like reestablish that trust and confidence. So um, I think equipping them with these tools will help their conversations go so, so much better because they do care about the outcome. And so we may have associates on the phone that. Yeah. I think that apologizing. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I, I think there's a disconnect sometimes 
where our, our associates don't always realize that they're also consumers. So they put themselves in only the, you know, in the, the worker position, right? And they don't think about themselves as the consumer. And so when they're operating, they're operating under this, here's how I think an employee is supposed to respond in this situation. Here's how I think an employee is supposed to uh, say something to a customer, but they're not thinking as a customer, here's what I realistically want to hear. Uh, mm -hmm. They're so worried about maybe checking some boxes mm -hmm. instead of how do I actually want to communicate and talk to this other person who at the end of the day is just another person at the other end of that phone or across from me if I'm a cashier. So when we can kind of bridge that gap and help people understand that we're all consumers and it goes back to that platinum rule, right? Don't treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Treat them the way that they want to be treated. And we can we can help people to understand that more if we if we kind of try to lower that expectation around here's how you should act and instead more how do you want to how do you want that person to feel at the end of this conversation and what things can you do to help the person walk away feeling that way absolutely and i think it is so important that we make that connection with our clients so that they don't feel like they're just a number or a dollar sign that we're working with. And I think another common one that resonated with me was avoiding attempts at warmth that put the focus on you and it makes the client feel like you're not listening. So in this example mm -hmm. they gave, they said, oh, you know, I'm sorry for this. The same thing happened to my sister. And I think that's a really common thing we hear on insurance calls it's like, oh, we had our basement flood too. And that 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 can be appropriate, but um, sometimes it can just make it sound like we're not listening. And I think it's so important to stay hyper-focused on the client. And so not waxing eloquent on your experiences and your life and your backstory in the name of trying to make small talk or build that connection or that rapport, but asking them more questions about their situation, or in this case, giving them more options. Yep. And honestly, that's just human nature as well there's nothing that people like talking about more than themselves. And so it's in an attempt to connect with other people, we want them to not feel alone. And so we think sharing our own story will help them to not feel so alone and that'll solve the problem, but will it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where we have to teach people instead of sharing a story, here's some questions that you can ask to learn more about their situation that are also building connection, but ultimately working towards the goal of solving a problem. Great. And I love that you worked that into our um, retention course on client requested cancel and just having that problem solving mindset and like what tools they can use to give the clients options um, based on what they said. So taking a different approach based on each customer situation. What are yeah, some absolutely. of the, everybody's different? So. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the the things that you hear from the team when we coach them on like trying out a new talk path for the first time. And maybe we're talking to that someone who's been overly apologetic and said, oh, the same thing happened to my sister. And they aren't aware that they shouldn't be doing that. Like, how would you coach that person to look at it differently without hurting yeah. their feelings too much? Because <laughs> they're trying to be nice. <laughs> I think one of the best ways that you can kind of get folks to understand how something sounds is to like 
switch the role play, right? Like they're now going to be the customer. I'm going to be the associate and I'm going to say exactly what they said in, in exactly the same way. And then talk about how it made them feel afterwards. Um, a lot of times it can be a light bulb moment for an associate where they're like, oh, I didn't realize that I was sounding a little bit condescending, or I didn't realize that, you know, I really wasn't doing anything for the customer at that moment. It just, I felt like I was doing the right thing. Um, so that's one, that's one way of kind of getting people to see the light bulb. But another way is really just asking people to try something. So at first, people can be really hesitant to trying anything new, especially on the phone, especially when they feel like they have a tried and true uh, way of operating that works for them. One thing that I've always done with my team is I ask them for 30 days. I'm like, look, can you just try this for the next 30 days? I'm not asking you to change it forever. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something new. But for the next 30 days, can you commit to every single time you get this situation, you're going to implement these three things? Do, do, do. One, two, three. You know, apologize within the first seven seconds. Advise the customer that you're going to work on solving the problem for them. Three, ask them if this solution has worked for them. You know, whatever the, the three, one, two, three things are going to be. I just want you to try those three things. And if it doesn't work, we'll reevaluate again in 30 days. But I need a full commitment. And when we can get that, that's how we're better able to adjust our coaching. Because then what we'll discover is that the times that they're doing it, it's working. And the times that they're not doing it, it's because of some other trigger. So maybe they do it perfectly on every call, except for when the customer comes on really, really upset or crying or angry right? That's a trigger for them. And it takes them out of that practice behavior. And they revert back into their, here's what I know works for me. Um, because it's, it's not an ingrained skill at that point yet. It's still something that they're practicing. So if we can better identify those triggers, that's how we coach to those specific scenarios and make it become a skill that's ingrained. Oh, that's habit forming, if you will. Yeah. And that explains why on some calls you might have associates that are like tried and true. And you know, that 80% of the time they're going to get it right. And then those two times they don't, and you're like, what happened? But there had yeah. to have been some kind of trigger there that threw them off. So they reverted back to what they, their brain felt like they knew. And so it would explain yep. some of those inconsistencies, even with, you know, your consistent like team member that, that knows what they're doing and they committed to the, the three steps. Yeah. In times of stress, that's when you behave your most natural way. It's when your personality is at its most natural state. It's why they have drills in schools for what to do in the event of a tornado or an emergency is because if we don't practice that behavior, then when the situation happens and it's a true time of stress, we're not going to know what to do, or we're going to revert back to what we think we should be doing by including a distressed customer service, you know, somebody who comes, comes on the phone and they're super angry, that's going to trigger that flight, fight, flight, freeze, fawn response because it's a moment of stress for our associates. So the only way that we can coach that is by practicing those behaviors and skill coaching um, more than anything. So that when they're under stress and pressure, that skill is just readily available and they can lean on it and keep going. I feel like we could have a whole separate episode on like what goes on in our brain when stress happens, when we're trying to learn something new and what that does for our creative energy or being able to follow a new process. So, um, so much to pick your brain on there, Amanda. <laughs> Thanks for Yeah, it happens a lot. 
this was fun. So thanks for telling us a little bit about some of the like cool stuff you're following, your podcasts, the shows you're watching. I kind of want to pick your brain on some of the people that you're following on like TikTok next time. There's so many great content yeah. creators out there. And I'm kind of obsessed with like how much you can learn in bite-sized chunks from people that are putting out like tiny bits of information out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been very interested in a lot of topics over the last few months, but I will tell you that TikTok, you know, as, as silly as it can be, it's a great way to learn, you know, lots of really good pieces of information because there's so many really educated and really talented people on there that are sharing their stories and getting a lot of information out there that's super helpful. And, and it's so quick that it's easily yeah. digestible. I love this that. This is not a paid advertisement for TikTok, but I, I am a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's so addicting. So I I definitely want to pick your brain on it, but I'm going to save it for the sequel. So thanks Great. for joining us, Amanda. And I had so many takeaways. So like remembering that the male and female brain is different and that we remember not so much what someone says, but how it made us feel. This is something we've all heard. We all know. We all need that reminder is they're not going to remember everything I said, but how did I make them feel? And then um, just asking them to try something. Isn't that so much less daunting than asking for someone to dive off the deep end of the pool? Can, can you just try something for me? So yeah. I think that's <laughs> that's so timely. So thank you so much for the great advice and sharing your expertise today. And can't wait to have you back on the podcast in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Love talking about these things. So appreciate it. It's so fun. Always learn something new. So I know that you're working like really closely with a class of new students today. So you have, you and Jen are leading a class of, uh, let's see, nine new team mm -hmm. members. So we have our interns that pass their licensing and their learning insurance for the first time, our new commercial sales consultants and our new client care consultants. So I know you guys have a super busy day. So thanks for taking an hour out to come talk about content and how to be creative and what that means for our team. And I know you guys are going to have a super fun week with that new group. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. Looking forward to the next one. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast Certified.